Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode seven in the book of John titled Living Water, where we discuss John chapter four, verses one through 26. I'm Joel Hartford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we come to one of my favorite sections of scripture, and that is the interaction of Jesus, the Son of God, with this woman from the city of Sychar in the, in the region of Samaria. And it's just a powerful interaction where Jesus uh, meets her where she is, and they dialogue over, over the location, over worship, over what Jesus talks about as living water and what he has to offer in the gift of salvation. Can you give us just a brief overview and some insights that we're going to see as we read the passage, and then we'll read it and we'll discuss it? Yeah, it's a fantastic passage. I'm so excited to be able to go through it with you, Joel. It's going to be a good time. Um, for me, one of the biggest desires I have in my life is to be a, a fruitful, skillful, effective evangelist. You know, Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And here we have, I think, the, the clearest example of Jesus doing one-on-one evangelism, seeking to win a lost person to eternal life. And I can just sit at the master's feet as I read the words of this chapter and find out how I can carry on a gospel conversation with a lost person. So that's there's so many themes in this chapter, but that's one of the things I want to learn is how I can effectively share the gospel with somebody I might meet along the way. Mm. I'm going to read verses 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I know we got to go back 26 verses to the first verse, Andy. First, give us some background information. Um, where did Jesus go and why did he leave Judea? Well, it seems that things were getting hot in um, around Jerusalem and Judea, and so he wanted to go back up to his home area, up in the northern area, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, it's called. And so he did that because um, the ministry was really starting to take off. He was uh, making and baptizing, it says, more disciples than John, although it says in the text Jesus himself didn't baptize. So he needed to get out of there and let things cool down for a while because it wasn't time for him to be arrested and, and crucified. Why do you think John specifically mentions that Jesus didn't do the direct baptizing? It's a detail, and it's important for us to understand water baptism. I think it just goes to the, the nature of baptism and what, what John the Baptist himself said, I baptize with water, but after me will come one uh, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the weed into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Clearly talking about Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is superior to John the Baptist because of his baptism. Jesus, according to John, does two baptisms. And I think the only way you can really interpret it is one or the other. It can't be both. Baptize just means to immerse, to plunge someone into you know, vat of liquid or something like that, plunge or immerse. And so John says, look, I'm just doing water baptism. But the one who comes after me, he will baptize you, a mixed group, in, I think, either the Holy Spirit, which I think refers to salvation, uh, the immersion uh, by the Spirit into into God, uh, into the body of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, we were baptized by one Spirit into one body. So that's the immersion that Christ does when he, when he saves you through the Holy Spirit. Or fire, and in the context, there's no doubt John's talking about hell. So Jesus' baptism is far more eternally significant than just a symbolic baptism of water. But now here, Jesus' disciples are following John the Baptist's pattern in doing water baptism. And we also, as followers of Christ, we, in a Baptist church, we immerse people in water in the same symbolic pattern. But the real baptism is done by Jesus, and that's a spiritual baptism of immersion in the Holy Spirit. And then there's a later baptism, sadly, that will come for those who are goats and the sheep and the goats when Jesus says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So what John the Baptist is saying is he's saying, look, uh, my water baptism is just symbolic. Now, John understood the way he was writing his gospel that there could be some misunderstanding. Jesus was gaining and baptizing disciples, but he himself didn't perform the baptism. And I think he does that necessary clarification because Though Jesus could have done water baptism, it would have been confusing. Um, the superior baptism is done by Jesus, and it's not water baptism. That's effectively what John the Baptist was saying. So Jesus, I think, stayed out of it, but commanded his disciples to do it. It, it would be confusing symbolism similar to Jesus lawfully taking a godly wife. It, it, there's nothing wrong with him doing it, but it's very confusing because the bride of Christ is the church. 
And so who that woman would be in heaven, how that works, it'd be odd. So he just didn't do that symbolism and that, that actual, you know, that action. And so here there's this clarification that he didn't water baptize. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. What do you get at the fact that John said Jesus, quote, had to pass through Samaria? I love it. I love that you asked. Because there is another route oh, around Samaria. Believe that... me, the Jews knew there were other ways. They probably were talking to him about it. Why, why are we doing this? Why are we going through Samaria? We find out clearly in the text how much the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So why would they go through the Samaritan country? You have to have dealings with Samaritans at that point. Buying provisions, getting some water for your journey, different things. Jesus, even in this text, is tired from his journey and sits down and says to the woman, give me a drink. So if you're going to go through Samaria, you're going to have dealings with Samaritans. So the Jews would have avoided it, gone around another way. And there were other ways through Palestine. I think the had to comes to the doctrine of Christ's sheep. And he had some sheep there, not just the woman, but the whole village. And we find out from the end of the chapter that this Samaritan woman is effective in bringing the whole village to come listen to Jesus. And they eventually, listening to him, come to faith in Christ. So Jesus had to go through Samaria to win some Samaritans to eternal salvation. I love that you connect it to the, the sheep because in John 10, Jesus, that's the passage where he says, I'm the good shepherd. And he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Yeah. I must bring them in also. Oh, yeah. So there's, there's this compulsion, compulsion. Yes. to go out and find the sheep and bring them in. I was thinking, I was just flipping through while you were reading uh, John 4 to John 9, where Jesus says, as long as it is day, we must work the works of God. And this was one of the works of God. He had no choice. There was a woman to talk to. Now, he passes through Samaria. He stops in this town called Sychar, which the text tells us is near this field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. So there's some history there. It's part of the inheritance. Um, but what can you tell us about Samaria? Can you give us a little bit of historical background info on why Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Because it's going to help color the interaction. Right. There's a lot of history behind here. It goes back to Solomon, who had married lots of foreign women, and his heart was led astray, and God uh, judged him though not in his lifetime, by tearing away, you know, there was a symbolic tearing of a garment uh, of ten tribes, the northern kingdom, and that uh, became basically a permanent division in, among the Jewish people, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom became apostate immediately because Jeroboam, son of Nebat, set up uh, some golden calves and set up a whole religion and just threw off the Levitical priesthood and all that, just threw it off, and they became apostate pretty much immediately. And there were just no godly kings, you know, for the most part in the northern kingdom, and so they were the first to go into exile. And so the Assyrians came in, swept away the northern kingdom of, of uh, Israel, and then um, put some Gentile people there along with some Jews and they intermarried, intermingled and became what I think Orthodox Jews would call kind of a mongrel people with some Jewish heritage, um, but it wasn't the same heritage. They accepted only the first five books of Moses, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, none of the prophets or any of the history that followed. And so they were doctrinally false. Jesus, even this text says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. So they were lacking in knowledge uh, because they had rejected some of the scripture. Um, but they also were just corrupt, mingled syncretists. They mingled true religion with false religion. So there's a lot of history here. And then just in the course of time, there was, there was certainly fighting that went on, warfare that went on. There was all kinds of, you know, the, the Samaritans would side with maybe the Romans or would be collaborators. It was just a lot of hatred and hostility. And so they, Jews, had no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus does. He does deal with Samaritans. And so he sits by the well. He's weird. He shows his humanity. He shows he was a, a real man just like you and me. He got tired. And then this woman comes out, the woman of the city, and Jesus engages her. He says, give me a drink. 
So why lead in with this question, give me a drink? Well, he wants an interaction with her. He wants to talk to her. I think if he hadn't said a word, we I think we know very clearly what would have happened. She would have gotten the water she came for, maybe looked at him sideways a couple times and got out of there as fast as she could. How weird is that? A Jew sitting by the well, how awkward. And so I don't think she would have said a word. So Jesus initiates, but then big picture, just in terms of salvation, it is always God that initiates. And even in the text we're going to study, we are studying today. It says, these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is seeking true worshipers. And so he's seeking this woman's soul through his son. And so he initiates. And so for, for me, lessons on evangelism is clear. I need to take the initiative. Like when I sit on an airplane and I want to I talk to somebody about Christ, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to be friendly. I'm going to have a conversation. If the person just being quiet and all that, I want to strike up that conversation. If they're willing to talk, I want to talk to them. And so Jesus takes the initiative. But interestingly here, we think a lot of times about mercy ministry. We're going to feed the poor, do a, a medical ministry. We're going to meet needs. Here Jesus had a need to be met, so it went the other way. Help me out. You could have a flat tire and lead the person who helped you to Christ. You know, I mean, it just have the interaction, both sides of the equation. So Jesus is the needy one here physically. Yeah, the gospel cannot be shared without a meaningful interaction. Got to have right? that conversation. So she is surprised that he's speaking with her. She asks this question. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? We've talked about why she would say that. And Jesus responds to her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now let's pick apart his response to her. I think you've called it four hooks that yeah, he gives like her a try catch her, her yeah, I'm going with the fisher of men analogy, so I'm not much on fishing, but you think about a lure with four hooks. Yeah, I want to say something, though, about this woman before we get into that, and that's a beautiful thing to unfold, but I just I just think it's, it's beautiful what one preacher um, that I heard years ago said about this woman and who she was just in the world. Um, his name was Ronnie Stevens, and he said these things I never forgot. Um, he said, the, the Jews were the rejects of the world. In other words, the world looked down on the Jews and thought little of them. And the Samaritans were the rejects of the Jews. In other words, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. And the Samaritan women were the rejects of the Samaritan men. In other words, the men considered themselves superior to the Samaritan women. And this woman was the reject of the Samaritan women. So you couldn't have found someone lower in the world's esteem than this woman. Um, we're going to find out why that you know she has a sordid past, but Jesus wants her, and he has a tremendous interest in her soul. And so this just speaks to me again about evangelism. There's no one so low in the world's eyes that the gospel can't reach down and elevate them really to glory. And so I, I love that that step process that Ronnie Stevens gave us that Jesus has an interest in human beings and where they're at in social, the social strata doesn't matter at all. I think just picking up on that, what you're sharing, you know, so many times um, we get caught up in worrying about who we're talking to, you know, and he's, he's the son of God, the Lord of glory. And he, he goes and talks to the lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. 
so true. And there's another another aspect to it too. And that, that's I remember when I was involved in campus ministry, and we frequently would like go after the athletes, the, the star quarterback, because if he came to Christ, think of the platform and the influence. And God sometimes does that. But in the Corinthian uh, letter in chapter one, he says, "Not many of you are wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. But God chose the lowly things of the world to shame the wise." This is a clear example of that. This woman is exactly like that. And ironically, she does. She bring is effective. A bunch of people to Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Things the whole town. So let's go to the lure with four hooks. And, and Jesus, um, after she's surprised and doesn't know why he's even talking to her, he says this statement. And this and what, what I love about this, and I think this is a key in evangelism, in an evangelistic conversation, is you need to be interested in the other person. And you also need to be interesting to the other person. You need to say things that draw them in, that make them want to talk to you. And Jesus gives a beautiful example of this with this fourfold statement. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And each of those four aspects of his statement get picked up on in the ensuing narrative. She picks up on each one of them. So let's go through them. Okay. One. If you knew the gift of God, right. salvation, right? If you knew the gift of God, the gift of God, I think, is salvation ultimately. Um, but it's certainly absolutely tied to him. He's going to later say in the same gospel, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. He makes all these I, I am, am the statements. bread from heaven. Yeah, right? actually, I think he says yeah. I am to this woman. I mean, at the end, he says, um, you know, she said, I know that Messiah is coming. I think you could literally translate it. The one who speaks to you, I am. So he's, he, he just, John again and again has these I am statements. So zeroes in first on the gift of God. The gift of God is salvation, forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future, a place in heaven given freely as a gift by God's grace. Just as Romans 3 says that uh, Christ is a propitiation offered freely by his grace through faith in his blood. And so the forgiveness of sins is a gift from God. And so if you knew even about that gift, what gift is available to sinners like you? So that's where it starts. If you knew the gift of God, part one. So part two is, and who it is that says to you. Yeah, so and she's going to pick Jesus up on that. Is. She's going to pick up on who are you? She's going to ask him later. We'll get there in a moment. But she's going to say, who are you, basically? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And it's such an ironic statement. For us as Christians, Jesus is the radiance of the, of, uh, and, the and the glory of the invisible God. He, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is worshipped by the archangels who cover their faces, the infinite glory of Jesus. Jacob? <laughs> Greater than Jacob. I, I made Jacob. I made Jacob, and he was no great shakes. Let's be honest. Uh, like it says in Hosea, he grasped his brother's heel in the womb. Okay, This, this guy was a scoundrel from, from birth and right through. So he, he's no great man, but he was still chosen by God's grace and made great. Um, great at the end. He was, in right. the end, he was right. transformed, he was and he had a pilgrimage, and God worked. But So she had no idea who he was, and she picks up on it. But if you knew, Jesus said, the gift of God and who it is who speaks you. Now, I, I get goosebumps when I think about this. If you knew who I am, and you think about the then, if then, then you would ask him. And so I've thought about this. If we know Jesus, we'll ask him for things. We'll ask him for salvation. We'll ask him for everything. Because salvation is infinitely greater 
than any other thing we could ask. And so I, th- I think this is just a, a, a statement that we should keep in mind with prayer. The better you know Jesus, the more you'll ask him for things. Because he's limitless in his power. He can do anything. So if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking to you, if you really knew who I was, first of all, you'd be on, on your face worshiping me. And second of all, given your situation, given who you are and where you're at, you'd ask me for something. So if you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you. So part three, you would have asked him, you know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So third thing is you should ask me for something. Now she's going to pick up on that too. She's going to say, what can you do? You don't look like much. You look like a dusty Jew sitting on the edge of the well, and you don't have anything to draw water with or nothing. You have nothing to offer. So appearances with Jesus absolutely can be deceiving. As Isaiah 53 says very plainly, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is an appearance that we should desire him. But you, if you knew me, you would ask me for something. You would, you would make this request, and then the fourth part, and he would give you living water. So this could connect back to the gift of God, but living water. And that's a beautiful uh, image, really, of salvation, the idea of living water. And it's appropriate because they're at the well. Yeah. She needs water, and he's offering her just a, something so much better. Yeah. But it does, have a, it does have an aspect of, you know, um, the psalmist speaks of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Yeah. Jesus speaks of, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood. There's a mm-hmm. tasting and receiving that he offers. And so water is very appropriate for that, right? Yeah. And you're sustained by water. You can't live without water. Yeah. You'll die. It, you know, it's, and it's a strange image too, living water, um, water that lives or the water of life. It's just, it's just interesting images here, but it's very provocative. And that's what I learn in terms of evangelism here. Say things that are fascinating, things that draw people in, things that hook people and make them want to talk to you more about Christ. You know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking of the tree of life, right? The tree of life. And this is actually the, the return of the tree of life, right? Yeah, the living absolutely. water. Because Jesus is later going to say, whoever eats of me, he will, he will live, you yeah. know, he will live forever. Right. So he's, I think he's clearly got her hooked at this yeah. point, but he says he, he makes this incredible statement. So as you mentioned, when we were going through the, uh, the hooks, uh, she does respond. She says, uh, with some doubts at first, she says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Like you said, looks can be deceiving. And the well is deep. So there's these great obstacles. Where then do you get that living water? Then she challenges him with Jacob. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank of it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. I think there she's probably referring to Jacob's deathbed blessing, where he blesses each of the sons. It's where he announces that the scepter will not depart from Judah. You know, the, the royal lineage will come from Judah. Yeah. Um, and then he uh, also gives some land distribution. So I'm guessing that this is where that came from. Yeah, a plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And so we don't really have a record of that. The New Testament frequently gives us these insights, uh, et cetera. But yeah, that's some kind of, kind of bequeathing. But yeah, let's talk about this. Uh, first of all, I'm not going to make a universal statement, but many of the women that I know, my wife is certainly like this, have a very practical mind. Um, because they are involved in the practicalities of running a household. They know what it's, it's like to get three kids out of the car, you know, bathed, you know, fed, bathed, dressed for bed, and in bed. It's very physical. Now, this woman has a very physical task in front of her, and she has to do it every day. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They, they had to go get water. Water's heavy. And the well is deep. And so she looks at him and thinks, she's, you know, you're, not, you're ill-prepared. I'm just telling you, you need a rope and a bucket, and you don't have it. 
so you have nothing to offer me. So I just think it's, it's fascinating, the statement says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. And where are you going to get this living water? She, she doubts that he can, he can make good on his seemingly boast. Now think again what Jesus said, if we can keep it simple. If you knew who's talking to you, you'd ask me for something. It immediately begs the question, all right, who are you? You must think you're something. You, you must really have a high opinion of yourself. So he draws her in uh, basically on the central topic of who he is. And she picks up on that and says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? And he drank from it himself, as it also was flocks and herds. So yeah, we have a heritage here. What do you have to offer? So does she believe in Jesus at this point? No, she doesn't know who he is. But she's intrigued. And the topic now is centered on what? It's t- centered on him. Who is he? And we can see that, again, in evangelism. We've got to center the conversation on the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus does that. And then he responds to her by contrasting the two different types of water. He does this a couple times, uh, you know, with food that perishes versus food that endures in John 6. But he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So let's go beyond understanding the water as as salvation, as the gift of God, as that which quenches our thirst for eternal life and forgiveness. And let's try to understand what does it mean that they'll never be thirsty again? And that what does it mean that the water will then become a spring of water inside the person? Because that's what he says. Yeah, all right. So let's go to her question. Are you greater than Jacob? Jesus answer, he doesn't directly answer it, but he does answer it. Yes, I'm greater than Jacob. Well, on what basis do you make that statement? My water's better. So, I mean, you keep it simple, and that's really what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, I'm greater than Jacob, and I'll prove it by the water that I give. You'll see. It's better. Um, So, if you drink of this water, you'll keep having to drink. It doesn't satisfy. It's just that endless, endless repetition, similar to what we see in the book of Hebrews with the endless repetition of animal sacrifice. It It didn't do anything. It wasn't effective. And so the water you drink, all it's going to do is sustain you in your present physical life. And at the end of that life comes judgment and, um, and eternal condemnation. But the water that I give, if anyone drinks of that water, you'll never thirst again. So let's start with that part before we get to the spring of water welling up. Drinking of Jesus produces eternal, lasting, permanent, final solution. So in other words, when you genuinely come to faith in Christ... Your, your searching is over. Amen. You have found what you were looking for in life. There is nothing else to look for. You found it all in Jesus. You don't need Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus a good job or Jesus plus money or Jesus plus anything. If you have Christ, you have everything that you need. And Jesus is effectively saying that, you know, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. You will be permanently, eternally, deeply, satisfied. And so what's interesting about that is just think about the the ups and downs of life. If you're a genuine Christian, you can understand what Paul meant when he said this phrase, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You may have temporary sorrow. Like the psalmist said, sorrow may remain for an evening, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So in the Christian life, we're going to have some pretty profound moments of sadness, but behind it all and in it all, and undergirding it all and through it all is a lasting, permanent joy that no one can take from us. 
So that's the first part. If you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. You don't have any more searching to do. You found everything you need for eternity. But then he adds a second part, which is fascinating. The first is more static and permanent. It's you found it, it's done, your search is over. The second is more ongoing kind of aspect where Jesus opens up inside of you, inside of your heart, your soul, your mind, inside of you, a well of salvation in Christ. You just keep coming back again and again and drinking. And what that means is that Jesus keeps on giving new aspects of himself to you. And I believe he'll do that for all eternity. He will show new things of himself. He'll bring new new aspects of, of delight and glory. There's no end to the infinite glory of Jesus. And so you'll be thirsty. You'll come to some dry place in your life and you'll have a quiet time or you'll go to corporate worship or your friend and you will do a Bible study or your spouse and, and you'll read some scripture and pray together and, and, and suddenly the spirit will move inside you and tears will come to your eyes and you'll learn some new thing and be refreshed again. And that's just going to keep happening. It's going to happen in heaven. We're, we're going to keep having new aspects of drinking because the the river of the water of life flows clear as crystal right down through the center of the new jerusalem and we're going to get down on hands and knees and drink and be refreshed it's a symbol maybe literal too i go with literal why not why not both a literal symbol where for all eternity we're going to find new refreshing aspects of the greatness of christ so he's finally hooked her oh yeah she says sir give me this water but she doesn't quite understand because she says so that i will not be thirsty nor have to come here to draw water. So she's still thinking this physical water. She's still thinking this well that she has to make this daytime journey in the heat. But she is intrigued. And so uh, then Jesus, though he actually turns a little bit and he's, he's now going to kind of confront her where it's most painful. Yeah. And he says, go, call your husband and come here. Knowing that we read the text that she has no husband, she's had five of them. Why do you think Jesus does this to her. Yeah, first of all, he knows her. We find that in a minute. She doesn't know yet that he knows. She's just hiding things. That's, I think, most scholars believe that she goes in the heat of the day, the worst part of the day to, for carrying heavy water. Um, when it's, You'd feel it the worst because she doesn't want to interact with other women. You know, the, the other people, other women, can be vicious and say hard things. And so she has, she has some things to hide. Even now, the man she is now with is not her husband, Jesus is going, going to say. And so her sexual immorality is shameful to her. And Jesus goes there, you know, that topic. It's like a boxer with a, with a severely broken rib. And he's got his, his arm on that side covering up the place so that he doesn't get hit there again. Um, because it's just so painful, and Jesus goes right to it. And it's just a, very much like what he does with Simon Peter after he denied him three times after the resurrection. He said, Peter, do you love me? You know, and just how painful that is. And it says Peter was hurt. And so Jesus sometimes has to hurt us in order to heal us. And so he's got to go there. Now, big picture, again, lessons on evangelism. We have to talk about sin. You don't need a savior if you're not in danger. Salvation always has to do with danger. And the danger we're in could not be greater. It's eternal, it's an infinite danger. And it has to do with our sins. And so if we're gonna be faithful evangelists, we have to talk about the individual 
personal sin of the person we're trying to lead to Christ. We don't have to get into details, but we need to talk about the law. We need to talk about uh, about um, sexual immorality. We need to talk about lusting in your heart and covetousness and, and greed and, and selfishness and anger and the things Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to probe people's hearts so that they feel the sting, the pain, and they realize, you know, I'm in danger. If they don't ever come to that point, they can't genuinely come to salvation. So Jesus has to zero in on her sin so that she sees the need for a Savior. So first she gives the, the short answer, I have no husband. I have no husband. And Jesus... <laughs> and nothing more. She doesn't have anything else to say yeah, on that I'm not going to offer up my history here, but Jesus knows it, like you yeah. said. And so he, he tips his supernatural hand, and, and this is the... To, this really moved her. You can tell because when she goes back into the Samaritan village, she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Vast overstatement. But he knew some things about her, and there's some details to what he says. He says, um, you know, what you have said is just is, is true. What you've said just now is true. So it's interesting that I he actually... I love how Jesus makes judgments on, hey, I just want you to know what you said is true. It's true. Yeah. He, he evaluates, but it's interesting. He doesn't slam her. He could have gone, you know, glasses half full, half empty. But he, he actually upholds her dignity by saying, you actually, what you said is true. Um, you know, you have had five husbands. So I don't know what her history is. I don't know if she's just repeatedly divorced or she's divorced. I don't know what the deal is. She could have been abandoned. She abandoned. Could have we, have no idea, we have but no it's, idea. It's got to be the single most painful thing in her life. You think about, you know, back then women, the, being a wife, being a mother, being, you know, I mean, that was it. That was the centerpiece of her honor. And so she has no honor. And, and so it's, it's, and, and, and now she's, I guess we would have to say like shacking up with, she's, she's cohabiting with, or, or I don't know what she's doing, but she's clearly sinfully involved with another man who's not her husband. Jesus knows it all. So the number five and the man you now have, not your husband, these are specific details that he would have no way of knowing except uh, the supernatural knowledge of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now she, as soon as she hears this, uh, she's obviously put back a little bit. She knows something supernatural is in front of her. And uh, so she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she turns the discussion away from her sin, uh, kind of away from the living water they're talking about it, and to she wants to debate him on worship. So she says, Sir, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You know, I think it's Mount Gerizim. Yeah. And you people, you Jews, say that men ought to worship in Jerusalem, you know, which is the actual proper place of temple worship in the Old Covenant. And so, uh, but Jesus is happy to talk about worship. In fact, this is what he's going to. The Father is seeking worshipers. I want you to pull apart his answer. He says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in Jerusalem nor in this mountain you will worship the Father. Where is he going with this? It's just incredible. I mean, the level to which he gets to in John four twenty one to 24 is just staggering. Uh, John MacArthur calls it the greatest single passage on worship in the entire Bible. So, And he's saying, saying this to the Samaritan woman. First of all, let's look at her illogic. Uh, John Piper points this out in Desiring God. Um, in, in his book, Desiring God, he, he talks about how an animal trapped in, a, in a, a trap will gnaw off its own leg to effect its escape. And so this woman basically mangles logic, uh, as Piper puts it this way. Yeah, as long as you're talking about my marital life, let's talk about the proper place of worship. You know, <laughs> it's like that. But I think it's pretty obviously and transparently a smokescreen. She wants us to escape. She doesn't want to talk about um, 
about her married life or about her sexual life. Um, and so she brings up a very well-known controversial topic. Reminds me very much of what the Apostle Paul did when he was on trial for his life um, with the Jewish leaders. And he perceived that some of them were Pharisees and some of them were Sadducees and they debated over resurrection. And so he throws out the like a smoking stink bomb that got them into a frenzy arguing with each other. It was, it was a good way to... to to get out of the situation. Jesus, however, ironically takes the direction she goes and uses it. Now, he's not controlling the conversation. He is in a conversation with her. She brings up worship. He goes with it. Just like earlier, um, you know, she brought up uh, the well and the water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? It's definitely a conversation. She is contributing to the direction, and he goes the direction she chooses. It's quite interesting. But Jesus is very delighted to talk about worship because frankly, in the end, that's what salvation's all about. She is in heaven right now. And what is she doing there? She's worshiping. She's worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And so you think about that, that's what the salvation is all about. Taking idolaters, people whose hearts are corrupt and hard and are worshiping created things rather than the creator and turning them to genuine worshipers. So uh, the controversial issue had to do with the place of worship. He begins by dropping a theological bombshell, saying things are going to change when it comes to worship, when it comes to corporate worship. Now we know this from our study in the book of Hebrews. There isn't going to be a location of worship anymore. There's not going to be either in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim in Samaria, any one place to which all true worshipers will go to worship. That's done. That's incredible. It's like declaring all foods clean. Jesus is overturning a significant aspect of Jewish worship. So in other words, the time is coming when that whole thing's going to be obsolete. So I actually don't need to weigh in on that. <laughs> so we're not going to solve it because very, very soon. It's coming very soon when, when the location won't matter at all. All right. And then he says something about the Samaritans, as we mentioned earlier. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. And so in other words, if, if I were forced to weigh in, you're wrong and you're and you're your approach to religion and to sacrifice and to, to scripture and all that is wrong. We have a better revelation because we also include the prophets and the other things. So fundamentally, there's a flaw in the Samaritan thinking. And then he drops this other bombshell, for salvation is from the Jews. It's a hugely important it's, it's incredible. And also it shows, I think, why the ceremonial law ever existed to begin with things that are obsolete now, such as dietary regulations, circumcision, the, the one place of worship, the fact that only Jews could go there, um, the fact that only Levites could serve as priests, the fact that only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies, all those restrictions. I believe the whole thing was to identify the one Savior of the world. Among the billions of people that have ever lived, we have his address. He's a Jew. Salvation is from the Jews. And we have more prophecies. He's a descendant of David. He's, you know, all that. But he is a Jew. And the very first thing we learn about Jesus in the New Testament, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham, and he's a Jew. So he's saying to this woman, salvation is from the Jews. Then he gets into the issue of worship. Yeah, go ahead. Since we've been talking about this passage in relation to evangelism, I think this phrase Jesus says is just super helpful in engaging with anybody with a different form of worship. Mm. You know, essentially, you worship what you do not know. 
we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Yeah. It's still from the Jews. It's from Jesus Christ. Amen. And so there is no, there is no other salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which one may be saved. And so it's this is still true today and still helpful to say you don't really know what you worship. Yeah. There's only one way, and it's from the Jewish Savior. Yeah, and he's going to actually say that when he says uh, that God's worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, and the truth comes from Scripture. So the fact that they rejected a lot of what God had revealed through Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms and all that meant that they were defective. They had limited knowledge because that, that additional information is vital, and then how much more the New Testament now. So the foundation here is salvation is from the Jews and it's mediated to us through Jewish scripture. So the scripture writers are, are for the most part, Jews. And so, you know, you, you have this, this statement. And then he goes to worship in verse 23. And he says, you know, effectively concerning worship, let's, let's talk about that. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now, he says the time is coming and has now come. He says in another place in John chapter 5, he says sometimes the time is coming, but he doesn't say it and has now come. In this case, however, this is already going on. People are being made into true spiritual worshipers by the Father now. And we know that's happening in in the Samaritan woman right there and then. She is being made into a true spiritual worshiper. So the time is coming and has now come when those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and truth. So the, the, I would say that, that a key aspect of worship here is that it's focused on the Father. It's not to say we don't worship Jesus. We do. But we worship Jesus especially as he is the revelation of God. He reveals God to us. He is the radiance of God. He is the, the, the image of the invisible God. Anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. So Jesus came to bring us to the Father. And so worship is God-centered, Father-centered. Again, I'm not minimizing the Spirit or the Son, but the, the Spirit and the Son seem to be active and working, bringing us to God the Father. And so the worship is on, on the Father. And notice the Father is energetically seeking Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but he came on mission from the Father. So the Father is out there in the world. It's happening right now. The Father all over the world is seeking people who will worship him. And then the phrase, they will worship him in spirit and in truth. We need to understand that. God is spirit, verse 24. And those who worship him, his worshipers, must worship in spirit and in truth. Now let's understand that phrase. This is why I think John MacArthur says the greatest single passage on worship in the Bible. Okay? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, there's different wor- ways of understanding the word spirit. The Greek in which this is written did not have capital letters or small letters. It just, all the letters were capital. And so we don't, we don't really know if it's spirit with a capital S, which would refer to the Holy Spirit, or spirit with a little s, which refers to, I think, your human spirit. And, and both of those are valid because it says in Romans 8, the spirit, capital S, testifies with our spirit, lowercase s, that we're children of God. So it's not like a heretical view that our spirit is involved here. And I think it's actually the better interpretation. True worship involves our own spirit, namely our heart. It's a heart thing. Like Jesus said, you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's not worship. And so for me, I need to be worshiping heated up inside myself. There's a, there's a passion that, that's inside a fire. Like, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, we're not our, our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us. 
And so there's a burning fire, but it's got to be based on truth. And the truth comes from the scripture. So true worship is, it starts with truth. Faith comes by hearing. It starts with the ministry of the word. Truths are told us about God. God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, all these God is statements. And we learn who God is from the word of scripture. And then our hearts get kindled. And then we bring it up to God in worship. That's what God is looking for. And he wants that from this Samaritan woman. He wants that from her. She gives one final deflection. Mm-hmm. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, because it's obviously not you, right? I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus is finally ready to break down all of her barriers. And as you said before, he responds to her, I who speak to you am he. That's the way the ESV reads it. But you, uh, when you do your translation work, you read it a little differently. Can you well, just the ego amy in the Greek, uh, and we just see this again and again in John's gospel. You know, you just see this, the I am statement. And so I don't think she fully understands who he is. But fundamentally, um, she, I think she's close. She's intrigued. She's been drawn in. And, and the invisible working of the third person of the Trinity must be assumed here. The Holy Spirit's working on her. Jesus did mighty miracles by the power of the Spirit. Jesus also did evangelism by the power of the Spirit. He went around in the power of the Spirit doing good. And so the Spirit is there, and he's working on her. This woman's converted by the end of the day. She's converted probably by the end of the conversation. And so, you know, she's asking about Messiah. It's on her mind. It's the thing that both the Jews and Samaritans were waiting for. Now, the Messiah, let's talk about him. Because her heart, I think just like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, her heart's burning inside her. She's like, who is this person? Who is he? Now, Messiah, when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. What a statement she makes. And I think that's true. Jesus later says the same thing. The, the, the slave, the servant, doesn't know his master's business. But I call you friends because everything I've heard from the Father I'm, I make known to you. And that's going to get even more in heaven. He's going, to, he's going to explain everything to us. And so Jesus is that one. And so he makes it very plain. The Messiah, the one you've been waiting for for centuries, you're looking at him. Let's keep it simple, apart from the I am statement. Just the one you're talking to right now, I am he. I'm the one. What a, what a moment in redemptive history. And for her, the conversation's done. She leaves her water jar and runs into town to get these people. And it's just an incredible moment. He's not been that clear with anybody else. He's always speaking in parables and, you know, says to Pilate, you have said it and things like that. He's just, he, he, but with her, he's so direct. I am the Messiah. It's incredible. Now, on the I am statement, I don't think I'm reading too much into it because it's the whole purpose of John's gospel is to present Jesus as God. So it's not enough he's just the descendant of David. Whose son is he? Is he the son of David? He is. He is human, but he's also the son of God. He wants her to know that he is the I am. Now, I don't know that she fully understands that as she leaves her water jar and runs back into town, but she's processing it. Hmm. Well, we're going to end it here. That was episode seven in the book of John. Next week, we will discuss John chapter four, verses 27 through 54 for more on evangelism. And the title of that is, My Food is to Do the Will of Him Who Sent Me. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.